So I'm going to assume that you've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. But as Christians, I want to take it a step further and say that for us, familiarity with the scriptures brings complacency. You know, as we dig into the Gospel of John, and this is week seven of our series, we're running into some passages that most of us are familiar with. We've read them before, we've heard sermons on them before, and if we're not careful, we approach them with kind of a complacent attitude that, hey, I've been here, I know what this says, I know what it means. And the passage we're going to be in today, which is the latter part of chapter 6 and then the first 13 verses of chapter 7, are just such a passage. And, And I want us to go into it knowing that we're going to hear some things we've heard before, but... I'm going to push you. I'm going to take us some places that are a little bit uncomfortable and and may make you squirm a little bit in terms of what you think you know and what you've always heard. But the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to think clearly and soberly about what John is trying to tell you and I in these verses today. So we're going to jump right into it. But by way of review, last week we talked about how Jesus foreshadowed his sacrifice. He began to divulge to his disciples in particular, but to everybody who was listening to him, that there were some things that were going to happen to him in the days, the weeks, the months ahead that were going to shock the world. And most specifically, three plus years later, when he went to the cross. And he began to foreshadow those things. And we saw it in chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And, and we unpacked those verses and how he began to talk about himself being this bread from heaven, this bread that had been sent from heaven, like the manna when the Israelites were passing through the wilderness, how God provided then but he's providing now in a different way, a different kind of bread. Not physical bread that you take in and eat, but a spiritual bread, which would later become his body, his blood, his sacrifice on the cross. Well, this week we're going to look at the son's claim being received and rejected. It's interesting as we go through the book, we see Uh, Many people following Jesus, many people seemingly believing in Jesus, that word is used over and over again by John, but as we said a couple of weeks ago, it doesn't always mean what we think it means. As New Testament believers, those on this side of the cross, we hear the word believe, and if it's associated with Jesus, we almost always think of it meaning that we believe in him as our our Savior, uh, the Son of God. Uh, We believe in him for salvation, but in John's context, it's used in a variety of ways. And it, it doesn't always mean that people believed him to be, Jesus to be, who he claimed to be. Uh, they were sometimes confused. They sometimes had it partially right and partially wrong, as we'll see. But he's going to be received by some and rejected by others. And we've already seen that happening in terms of the Jews. And the key verse is verse 69 of chapter 6. You have, you have the words of eternal life. This is one of the disciples speaking to Jesus He's just asked them, are you going to leave me? Are you going to bail on me? Are you going going to be like the other followers who have left me? And this disciple says, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, this happens to be Peter. Peter's the impulsive one. Peter's the first one to always speak up and answer every question. Uh, He's that 
kind of hyperactive ADD guy that just can't keep his mouth shut. But in this case, he's right. And he makes a statement about who God is, who Jesus is, that he is the Holy One of God. So some believed, and yet some didn't. Some received, some rejected. So last week, we looked at Jesus making these claims about himself being the bread from heaven, the bread that came down from heaven, sent from God. And he said some pretty stark things, some pretty controversial things that rubbed the Jewish religious leaders wrong, but it also confused his followers. Listen to what he says in verse 58. It says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever whoever feeds on this bread, the bread he's talking about, the bread from heaven, will live forever. So he was talking about something being different about him. Remember, the people had been fed the day before by Jesus, that feeding of the 5,000. They had showed up the next day wanting more of the same. And when Jesus began talking about being the bread of life, they got confused and thought, well, we want some of that bread. We want to be fed constantly. They tried to make him king because they thought if we can make him king, he'll meet all of our needs forever. And they didn't understand who Jesus was and why he came. They kind of hoped he was the Messiah, but they had a particular view in mind when they thought of the Messiah. So Jesus says these controversial things. He says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, the people didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They were confused by it, but they were intrigued until he began to take it a step further. And all of this was said in the synagogue. He was speaking to Jews. He was talking to them about Moses. He was talking to them about the people of Israel in the wilderness. He had a captive audience, and it was all made up of Jews. And all of this was, again, confusing, disconcerting, even disgusting because of the things that he said. And it tells us in verse 60 that when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And you begin to feel the the pushback on the part of the people who are listening to him in the synagogue, and they're described as disciples. Now, again, that's a word that has multiple meanings in John's gospel. It sometimes refers to the 12, but it often refers to all those who follow Jesus for whatever reason. And, And it says that they found what he had to say difficult. It was hard. But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, they're struggling with what he has to say, said to them, do you take offense at this? Does this bother you? Are you struggling with what I have to say? Well, guess what? There's more to come. And they were struggling. They were having a difficult time. They did see it as a hard saying. And part of what we're gonna hear today is there's some hard sayings in here for you and I as believers living in 2020 in the United States. There's some things that are said in this passage that are going to cause us to have to think deeply and and strongly about what Jesus is telling us. And it may rub you the wrong way. You might, might find it a hard saying. See, this is what he told them. Not just that I'm the bread of life, and I'm the source of eternal life. But he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see where he's going, and we looked at this in detail last week. He's saying things that are 
difficult to understand and even disgusting to hear. He he's, seems to be saying, if you eat my body and drink my blood, right? That's what he says. That's what they hear and, and, and they don't get it. He goes on and says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is a hard saying. This is a difficult thing to hear. It's difficult to hear. It's even more difficult to comprehend what he's trying to say. And so they begin to grumble. They begin to struggle with what he's saying. And, and I love the way that John describes it, this kind of disconcerting, grumbling attitude that they have, which is reminiscent of the people of Israel back during the wilderness wanderings who are constantly grumbling and complaining because they find what he has to say unsettling. And there's something about the gospel that is always unsettling, both for those who are on the other side of the gospel, those who are unbelievers, but it also can be unsettling to some of us, us who are on this side of the gospel, who have placed our faith in Christ. It's meant to be unsettling. It's meant to be difficult to hear. So what did they do? They murmured, they grumbled, they complained, but they did it secretly. They, they didn't mean for Jesus to, to hear it. You can almost see them over on the side of the synagogue as they gathered together in little groups and began to murmur and complain and, and bicker. And what is he talking about? Does he want us to eat his literal body? Does he want us to drink his blood? And they found that, again, very, very confusing. And they were discontent and they complained. They secretly and discreetly began to complain about the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. Now, remember, these are described as followers, disciples. They had chosen to follow him. They had been fed the day before. They had crossed the Sea of Galilee to find him, and now they are seeking him out, and they went to hear him speak in the synagogue, but they don't like what they're hearing. And Jesus says, they're offended. He goes, are you offended? Do you take offense at what I'm telling you? And he obviously knew that they had. And this is an important word because in the Greek, it's skandalizo. It sounds very familiar to or similar to one of our words, which is scandalous. They were scandalized. And it literally means to lose trust. They lost trust in the one who was speaking because of the words coming out of his mouth, and they began to disapprove of Jesus. Isn't that interesting how quickly this happens, that the day before they're enamored with him, the next day they find him because they want more of the same, they want food, they want bread, they want him to take care of them, and in a matter of minutes after he speaks to them, they're scandalized. They begin to lose trust. It literally means to see in another what I disapprove of they see in Jesus something they disapprove of and what hinders me from acknowledging his authority. That's what this word means. And Jesus says, do you take offense? Are you now disapproving of who I am and my authority? Just a few seconds ago, you wanted me to make more bread and feed you. You certainly ate your fill the day before and now you disapprove of me? To the point at which they're going to walk away from him. So what's going on here? Verse 62 says, then when, what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? See, Jesus fast forwards and he says, you think this is difficult to hear? What if you were to see the son of man, me, ascending to where I came from? 
Now he's talking about his future ascension into heaven. And he's saying, you think this is difficult. There's far more difficult things to come because I came from heaven and I'm going to return to heaven. Once again, they don't get it. They don't understand it, but Jesus is changing the the trajectory of the conversation and he's moving it into a spiritual realm because their minds, as we said last week, are stuck in the physical realm, physical food, hearing him say, eat my body, drink my blood. And he's trying to move the conversation into the spiritual arena. That's why he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's the spirit, the spirit of God who gives life. It's not about manna in the wilderness. It's not about bread on a hillside. This is about something that takes place only through spiritual means and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, the flesh is no help at all. Now, this conversation and the topic of this conversation is all throughout the Gospel of John, this issue of the flesh, and it goes all the way into the rest of the New Testament, particularly the writings of Paul. Because Jesus is trying to get them to understand spiritual truth. He's he's talking to people who are stuck in a natural realm and they can only see things from their natural human perspective. And everything he's been telling them has a spiritual element to it. It's spiritually based. And it can only be perceived spiritually, not physically, not naturally. So it's spiritual truth, and and yet they're stuck. He knows they're stuck. He knows why they've taken offense, because they do not have the ability to understand what he's saying. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit of God. They're following him, but they have not been indwelt with the Spirit of God. Even his 12 disciples have not yet received the Spirit of God. So they have no capacity to understand what he's saying. And they have the very same problem Nicodemus had. We looked at that in chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to visit Jesus at night. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the religious elite of the people. And he comes at night because he doesn't want anybody to know he's there to see this rabbi, this teacher. And Jesus says to him at at one point, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You remember Jesus said, unless one is born again or born from above, he, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus being a good Pharisee and a religious ruler, felt like he had already earned his right into the kingdom of heaven because he was a Jew and he was a faithful Jew and he kept the law. And yet Jesus says, no, you have to be born from above. You have to be born of the spirit because that which is born of the flesh remains of the flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And here's what Nicodemus said, how can these things be? It was a difficult saying, right? How can that be? You remember at one point he says, Do I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Which clearly indicates that he was stuck in the wrong realm. He's stuck on a physical plane and he's not understanding what Jesus is saying. And Jesus responds, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? You can't grasp it. Even though you're a religious 
leader of the Jews. You're an expert in the law. You know the Hebrew scriptures, and yet you can't understand. Why? Because these are things of the spirit, not of the flesh. And so these people in the synagogue that day suffer from the same problem that Nicodemus had. And and Jesus goes on, he says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. What I'm telling you has power. What I'm telling you is not about this world, it's about another world. And it's about how you enter that other world, how you gain eternal life. Remember, he's been talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of eternal life. And yet they don't get it. Verse 64 says, there are some of you who do not believe. See, Jesus knows. He realizes that in that room, even though every one of them would have described themselves as a follower of Jesus, they weren't. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't understand who he was. And it tells us that Jesus knew from the very beginning who it was who would believe and who would not believe. Remember, The whole premise, the thesis of John's gospel is that Jesus is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is 100% God, 100% man. He has divine ability and he knows who it is who will believe in him and he knows who it is who will not believe. And he knows that there are some in the room who do not believe. But what does that mean? It means that following him is not indicative of belief. There are a lot of people who follow Jesus and they've done it for centuries. There were people in that synagogue who had followed Jesus, but they did not necessarily believe in Jesus, at least in who God revealed him to be. As always, Jesus has followers, but he doesn't always have true followers, true believers. And it's important that if you're gonna follow Jesus, you have to know who it is you're following and it has to be in line with scripture. It has to be in line with prophecy found in the Old Testament. It has to be in line with what we're taught in the New Testament, both in the gospels and in the writings of Paul and others. It's not enough to follow, you have to believe. These people, as we'll see in just a second, were fair weather followers. As soon as it got tough, as soon as the words became difficult, as soon as he'd stopped saying the things they wanted to hear and doing the things they wanted to see, they bailed on him. And there was a shakeout. There was a, um, a moment in time where the true followers were separated from the fake followers, the fair weather followers, followers. And it included Judas. Now, Judas is part of the 12. He's not yet walked away. But as we're going to see, and as most of us already know, because we know how the story ends, he's going to end up being a fair-weather follower as well. He was not a true believer. He was just a disciple, but he didn't really have faith in who Jesus truly was. It even says, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. Even Jesus knew at that moment in time in that synagogue that day that Judas would one day betray him. He was aware He knew who of those disciples, of those followers, the the people sitting in that synagogue would stop believing. And he also knew that one day the same would be true of Judas. And then verse 65 is gonna enter us into some territory that's gonna get really rough for us. 
Maybe not for some, but probably for most. Because listen to what it says. Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then he's gonna repeat it again in verse 65. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. What does that mean? Now, this is one of those passages that we, we get so familiar with that we blow right past it and we don't wrestle with it. We don't hear it as they heard it for the first time. And how we should be hearing it even today. See, Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. You can't understand me. You can't believe in me. You can't be truly one of my followers unless the Father grants it. And then look at what it says in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, this is a difficult saying. This is a hard truth for us to hear. He's saying that no one, no one in that room, Judas, the disciples, Peter, Matthew, no one, including all those followers who would walk away from him, could come to him, believe in him, unless the Father granted it. Now for us as modern day Americans who are self-assured and self-reliant and we pull ourselves by, up by our own bootstraps, that's a difficult saying. And it may go against everything you've been taught in your faith. But I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to go to the mat with God over it and consider what Jesus is telling you and I. See, I, I wanna ask the question, do you find this scandalizing, scandalizo? Do you find this to be a difficult, a hard saying to hear? And I guarantee I'm gonna get emails and bring them on. I would love to dialogue with you on this because this is so important for us to understand. I want it to be difficult. Jesus intended it to be difficult and we need to wrestle with it. And, and if it causes you to murmur, to complain, to discreetly get aside and go, what's Ken talking about? Is, has he lost his mind? I want that because see, this is the word of God. This isn't the word of men. This isn't my word. This is the words of Jesus coming out of his lips. And it's a spiritual truth that's going to require the spirit's help for you and I to fully understand it. And it's not gonna happen in a second. It's gonna take time. It's gonna take going back into the word of God and studying the scriptures and seeing what the entirety of the word of God has to say about this issue. See, in my mind, it makes no sense. In your mind, it makes no sense that no one can come unless the Father grants it. It just doesn't seem to fit. It seems to negate everything we believe about us, humanity, ourselves. It negates fleshly involvement in the process. Now, if you're like me, and somebody's asked you if you're a Christian, and how did that come about? How did that happen? You probably say something like, well, when I was seven years old, I walked down the aisle and I accepted Jesus as my savior. Or you may say something like, I chose Jesus. I decided to follow Jesus. There's an old hymn that we sang when I was a kid growing up. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Do you notice the emphasis in all those statements? It's about me. It's got I in it. I have decided, I chose, I made a decision for Christ. And it reeks of pride and self-sufficiency and self-effort. Now, don't get me wrong. Every one of us play a role in our salvation. 
But what I want you to hear Jesus saying is that it is a work of God from beginning to end. And it negates any fleshly embalmment. Now, if you know anything about the scriptures and if you're familiar with the scriptures, you, you probably are thinking, yeah, but what about, and a verse comes to mind, a verse like this, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, when Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Or you may think of the great verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the message that Jesus gave to Nicodemus that evening. All of you, whoever, seem to indicate that it's up to us. All of you, whoever wants to, can. And yet Jesus says, no one can unless it's granted by the Father. So do we have a contradiction? Do we have conflict? What's going on here? See, this whole section we're talking about has to do with belief. And Jesus knew that there were those in the room who did not believe. He knew there, there was one of his own disciples, one of the 12 who did not believe and would continue not to believe and would ulti ultimately betray him. So what's it about? Why did some in that room hear what Jesus had to say and not believe? And others did believe. Now, why did you believe? Why did you place your faith in Jesus Christ at some point in time like I did when I was seven? Was that up to you? Were you smarter than everybody else in the room that day? Did you have a greater brain capacity to, to capture what Jesus was saying? See, this is why this is so important because if we're not careful, we turn salvation into a work of man rather than a work of God. And Jesus is letting these people know it really has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. It has nothing to do with what you think you can do, but it has everything to do with what I'm going to do, what I've come to do. See, some believed and some didn't. Why? Because it's a matter of the flesh and the spirit. This is all about the difference between the flesh and the spirit. The human flesh, man in his own capacity, and what the spirit provides. So it's the difference between a work of God and a work of man. And this word work is going to appear in this passage because the people of Israel were obsessed with work. They were obsessed with doing good works. Nicodemus was a man who was obsessed with doing good works. What do I need to do? And this issue of man's work versus God's work is really what's at play here in this passage. And what Jesus is trying to explain to them, it's not about you, it's not about me. See, I love this from Romans chapter eight. Paul says, for to set the mind on the flesh, this body and its capacities and abilities, including my brain, my wisdom, my intellect, is death. It only leads to death. But to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God. Don't miss that. When I start putting all the emphasis on me, I become hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, don't miss that. 
those who are in the flesh, and most particular, those who are outside of Christ, which includes everybody in the world who has not yet come to faith in Christ, everybody in that synagogue that day was outside of Christ. And it says they cannot please God. Why? Because they're in the flesh. They're stuck in the natural world, in the natural plane. They're totally incapable of pleasing God through their self-effort. That's why in John 3, 6, it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is what? Spirit. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Pharisee. When you're born of the flesh, when you're born into one of these bodies, when you come out of the womb, you are flesh, and all flesh breeds is flesh, more flesh, and deeds of the flesh. And yet Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born, he who is born from above, born of the Spirit, is spirit. Something remarkable happens. Something amazing happens. It's not a work of man. It's a work of God. John also, uh, Jesus also told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again from above, through the power of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was like a brick to the forehead to a Pharisee who thought he had already earned his right into God's kingdom because he was a Jew, he was a Pharisee, and he was a keeper of the law. He was a righteous man. And yet Jesus says, no, you have to be born from above, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. It has to be a Spirit-empowered event. And in verse 63 of chapter six, it says, it is the spirit who gives life. What kind of life? Spiritual life. The flesh is no help at all. That is an incredibly difficult saying for us to handle. Your flesh, my flesh, is no help at all. It plays no real part in the salvation process. When I walk down the aisle at seven years old, in my dad's church, I, I made a choice to get up out of the pew and walk down the aisle as scared as I was, but it was all the work of God. It was he who gave me the strength to do so. It is the spirit of God that gave me the impetus to do so, that opened my eyes to want to do so. See, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. That's why in verse 65, Jesus says, I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The only way anybody in that room that day, anybody in that synagogue, including the 12, were gonna come to true believing faith in Jesus Christ would be because the Father granted it. It's a work of God. And I love in verse 37 of chapter six, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. When God grants it, it's a done deal. When God is involved, when it's a work of the spirit, when it is a birth from above, it will be evident and it will be effective. Or as theologians like to say, efficacious. It will take place in Jesus Christ will not cast them out. So again, what's he saying? The flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. It's impossible for you and I to please God. That's why Isaiah says all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. They're like polluted garments. It literally is a reference to a, a minstrel rag covered in blood. 
That's how graphic this verse is. But it says, all, everybody, man, woman, child, ever born and whoever will be born. None is righteous, no, not one, Paul says in Romans chapter three. Nobody, there's nobody who's righteous. There's no one who pleases God. There's none seeking for God. You know, years ago, we had what was called the seeker-sensitive movement, which I've always struggled with because according to this verse, nobody seeks for God. God has to call them to himself. Otherwise, men seek false gods. They make themselves God. They seek redemption, as we said last week, in policies and procedures and politics and politicians and platforms and ideologies. None truly seek after God. It gets worse. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. No, not one. Nobody does good. Nobody's righteous. All have sinned, Paul tells us, and, and they've all fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody measures up to God's standard. I don't care how good they may appear, it doesn't add up. Nicodemus was the cream of the crop, and yet he fell short of the glory of God. Why? Because he was only born of the flesh. He had not yet been born of the spirit. All have sinned and the wages of sin, Paul tells us, is what? Death. Everybody deserves the same thing because everybody's done the same thing. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's his work. It's his way through his power and his Holy Spirit. See, this is, this is the problem that we overlook and we get so lackadaisical about. Man had a, a tremendous problem when Jesus arrived on the scene. We're not good people who deserve God's grace to be shown. We, we aren't better than the next guy. We're, we haven't done anything to deserve this. We're sin-enslaved sin rebels who are deserving of the judgment, the righteous and holy judgment of God. See, that's the problem. But, and I love this, one of my favorite passages or chapters in the entire Bible is Ephesians chapter two. And I wanna just go there for a second and we're gonna run through it quickly, but don't miss what is in this incredible passage. It says, and you, speaking to you and I, believers, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were walking the way of all men, born of the flesh, living out the flesh, following the course of the, this world. So you were dead, lifeless, no ability to do anything good. And it says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. You were under his control. You were in his domain. You were living in his realm the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, in other words, the flesh, living according to this flesh, doing what we think to be right, living according to the worldly standards of this world, and we're by nature children of wrath, under the wrath of God. See, what Paul's telling you and I is that before coming to faith in Christ, this was your problem. This was your lot in life. This is who you were and where you were apart from God and without Christ, just like the rest of mankind. But here's the key, but God, I love this, but God, had God not done what he did, we would still be there. We would still have the same problem. We would still be apart from him with no way to get access to him. 
but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When you were dead, when you were lifeless spiritually, when you had no capacity to do anything about your, your state, God did something for you. It says he made us alive. He did the work and he did it because of his grace. Undeserved, unmerited. See, God did it. And it says, and then he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're as good as there. It is done. It's as almost as if we're already living in heaven with him because it's guaranteed by God so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. It's all about grace. It's all about the gift that he provides. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not your doing. You had no part in it. And I know everything in you wants to say, yeah, yeah, but I did. I made the decision. I decided. No, it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of anything you do so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship from beginning to end. It's all about him. It's not about me. It's a gift of God. It's based on grace. You can't buy salvation. You can't earn salvation. There's nothing you could do. Nothing Nicodemus had done until that point in time could earn him a right standing with God because he was born of the flesh and he would die in the flesh. He needed Jesus. He needed the work of God. He needed to be granted by God the ability to place his faith in Christ because he was dead. He was incapable. You see, it's a work of God from beginning to end. And when we start to insert ourselves into that process, it's one of the greatest displays of pride than any man or woman could ever show. See, it's, it's him. The only work, according to Jesus, the only work that you and I do is believe. And even that's not really a work because we're given the power to do so by the Holy Spirit. But if you wanna say it's a work, it's the only thing you and I do is believe in what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's why in verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, what? They ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, tell us what we're supposed to do so that we can earn this bread from heaven, so that we can have eternal life. And then Jesus says, this is the work of God. You wanna do what God would have you do? You wanna know what your role in this is? Believe in him whom he has sent. That's the only part we play in the process is we believe. And again, that is given to us by God. So verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They bailed, they walked out the door. They were frustrated, they were bickering, they were murmuring, they were having a difficult time hearing these difficult words coming out of his mouth. And I love this, Jesus immediately turns to the 12, his, his disciples, the one he had chosen. He says, do you wanna go away as well? And he knew that they were also struggling. These words were just as difficult to them and he goes, do you want to bail? Do you want to leave? And the always impulsive Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have believed. We know now that you are the Holy One of God. Now, once again, this is Peter speaking, but he, he's still not really sure what it is exactly he believes about Jesus. All he knows is that I don't know anywhere else to go to hear what I'm hearing, and I am trying to believe that you truly are the Holy One of God. And I love what Jesus says to him. Did I not choose you, the 12? Did, did I not tell you and call you to follow me? You, you didn't seek me out. I called you and you were given to me by God as he'll pray in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And yet one of you is a devil. One of you is going to not believe. One of you is going to betray me. And he spoke this of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. See, Peter's saying, but we believe in you. Where else would we go? You're the Holy One of God. You're, you're the Messiah. We, we, we believe you to be who you are, but that even that belief was insufficient. Only 11 of the 12 would really truly believe and be true followers of Christ, but, and their belief was still in process. It was incomplete. See, Peter would later declare of Jesus something pretty significant. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus had just asked, who do the people say that I am? And they gave a variety of answers. Well, you're Elijah, you're the Messiah, you're this, you're that. And he goes, well, what about you guys? What do, who do you think I am? And Jesus blurted out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Great answer, A plus, Simon. But Jesus revealed to him that this didn't come from you, this came from God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't think this up. This didn't come from your brain. This came from God, the Father. He revealed this to you. Peter didn't have the capacity to know these things. God had revealed it to him. Even their belief as it grew was a gift from God as they began to become increasingly more aware of who he was. So Peter's insight was not the result of divine, it was the result of divine inspiration, not what? Human intuition or human intelligence. Peter did just suddenly wake up one day and go, you know, I get it now. I, man, I understand. This guy's the Messiah. No, it was revealed to him by God through divine inspiration. No one can come unless it's granted by the Father. No one can understand, can comprehend until their eyes, their spiritually blind eyes are opened by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we know from this passage, not everyone received him. Not everyone believed in him. And many in that room walked away because they remained spiritually blind. Didn't, didn't get the words, didn't like what they, they heard him say. And they were scandalized by what they heard. And it left their hearts hardened and unrepentant. And this pattern is going to happen over and over again in the Gospel of John because these people are still operating in the flesh. It's all they can do. You know, when you get frustrated with people out there in the world who don't believe what you believe and who stand opposed to the things of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's all they know to do unless it is granted them by God, unless their spiritually blind eyes are opened, they will never move from the flesh to the spirit. They will, be, they will remain of the flesh. 
See, you and I stand on the other side and we look back and go, don't you get it? Don't you understand it? But we've had our eyes opened. And our prayer should be that God would open the eyes of those whom we long to see come to faith in his son because it will only happen if he does so because the flesh is no help at all. It's not a work of man. Then real quickly, chapter seven, verses one through 13, paints a really interesting picture that Jesus went about in Galilee. He's up in that Northern area, up by the Sea of Galilee, and he wouldn't go back into Judea. Why? Because the Jews are trying to kill him. We know they've rejected him. We know they don't like him. And it tells us that the Feast of Booths is at hand and Jesus should be going back to Jerusalem for the feast. And even his brothers come to him, his half brothers, and they compel him. They bait him into going back into Jerusalem. But look at what they say. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Hey, Jesus, Go back to Jerusalem, make yourself known. Go back into the capital city. Go where everybody will see you. Go when the crowds will be gathered for the feast and do these works that you're doing. Because nobody works in secret. You gotta show yourself. You gotta get visibility. They're like really bad PR directors. But look at what they say. If you do these things, show yourself. Now, this is a statement of doubt. It begins with if, if you really do these things, if you really have power, or if you really are the Messiah as you claim to be and we don't believe it, then show yourself. There's doubt that reeks in the statement. And it tells us that not even his brothers believed in him. They don't believe who he is. And you skip to verse 10 and his brothers go on without him because Jesus refuses to go because he knows what they're up to. And it says, after they went, he went up. Not publicly, but in private. See, Jesus wasn't about displaying his glory so that everybody would believe in him to be the king, that everybody would want to see him sitting on the throne. He knew what his brothers were up to. And he also knew that the Jews were looking for him at the feast. And they're saying, where is he? These religious leaders want to know where he is because they want to put him to death. They hate him so much already that they're willing to kill him. And it says, there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Some said, no, he's leading the people astray. There's these differing opinions about him, but they are all stuck on an earthly plane. They're living in the flesh. They're seeing things from the flesh and they don't get it. And so no one was willing to really speak about him because they all lived in fear. So as we wrap this up, the claims of Jesus did a number of things. And we see in this passage, that first of all, they turned followers into deserters. His words were difficult to understand, difficult to hear. The religious leaders were turned into enemies. They hated what he said about himself. They hated his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. They hated his claims to be equal with God. And so they became his sworn enemies. The claims of Jesus exposed the, exposed the weakness of the flesh. No one can be made right with God through the flesh. It's impossible. And his words hardened their hearts. When they were told they can't, they pushed him away. Pride set in. Don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me that my role's not important. 
and they turned against him. His claims explain salvation as the gift of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And those words still apply today and they're still shocking today. They're still difficult for us to hear today. So here's your questions for further thought. Why do you think the unsaved today still consider the claims of Jesus to be scandalous, scandalizo? What makes his words so difficult to receive and accept by those who are outside of faith in Christ? Secondly, in what ways do we as believers still believe that our salvation was up to us and why would that be harmful to our faith? Why is you inserting yourself into the salvation process so dangerous and so detrimental to to your faith? And then finally, go back and look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. There's no doubt that these are hard words. What Jesus had to say in that passage are hard. Of course, these are the words of Paul, but they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. How should they bring you and I comfort, hope, and assurance? Have you been scandalized today? I hope so. Are these difficult words to hear? I know so. But I want you to wrestle with them. I want you to debate among yourselves. If you have questions, email me. If you have difficulties, talk to me about them. But let's go to bat with this. Let's go to the mat with God and let's let him explain that it's all his work from beginning to end. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their willingness to study this passage and this book and get into your word and wrestle with it, talk about it together. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see things maybe from a new light for the first time. And Father, thank you that salvation is your gift to us all by grace, not by works, lest any of us should boast. And we would if we could. We love you and we give you this day and we give you the rest of the week and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'll see you guys next week.